Section 3 of The Case of the Pool of Blood in the Pastor's Study by Grace Isabel Colbron and Augusta Groner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Some time more passed in deep silence. Each of the men was occupied with his own thoughts. A sigh broke the silence now and then, and a slight movement, when one or the other drew out his watch or raised his head to look at the door. Finally the sound of a carriage outside was heard. The men sprang up. The driver's voice was heard, then steps which ascended the stairs, lowly and lightly, audible only because of the great stillness. The door opened, and a small, slight, smooth-shaven man, with gentle face and keen gray eyes, stood on the threshold. "'I am Joseph Muller,' he said with a low, soft voice. The four men of the room looked at him in astonishment. "'This simple-looking individual is the man that everyone is afraid of?' thought the Count, as he walked forward and held out his hand to the stranger. "'I sent for you, Mr. Muller,' said the magnate, conscious of his stately size and appearance, as well as of his importance in the presence of a personage who so little looked what his great fame might have led one to expect.' "'Then you are Count Blank?' answered Muller gently. "'I was in Budapest, having just finished a difficult case, which took me there. "'They told me that a mysterious crime had happened in your neighborhood, "'and sent me here to take charge of it. "'You will pardon any ignorance I may show, as a stranger to this locality. "'I will do my best, and it may be possible that I can help you.' The Count introduced the other gentlemen in order, and they sat down again at the table. "'And now what is it you want of me, Count?' asked Muller. "'There was a murder committed in this house,' answered the Count. "'When?' "'Last night.' "'Who is the victim?' "'Our pastor.' "'How was he killed?' "'We do not know.' "'You are not a physician, then?' asked Muller, turning to Orze. "'Yes, I am,' answered the latter. "'Well?' "'The body is missing,' said Orze, somewhat sharply. "'Missing?' Muller became greatly interested. "'Will you please lead me to the scene of the crime?' he said, rising from his chair. The others led him into the next room, the magistrate going ahead with a lamp. The judge called for more lights, and the group stood around the pool of blood on the floor of the study.' Muller's arms were crossed on his breast as he stood looking down at the hideous spot. There was no terror in his eyes, as in those of the others, but only a keen attention and a lively interest. "'Who has been in this room since the discovery?' he asked. The doctor replied that only the servants of the immediate household, the notary, the magistrate, and himself, then later the count and the district judge, entered the room." "'You are quite certain that no one else has been in here?' "'No, no one else.' "'Will you kindly send for the three servants?' The magistrate left the room. "'Who else lives in the house?' "'The sexton and the dairymaid.' "'And no one else has left the house today or has entered it?' "'No one. The main door has been watched all day by a gendarme. "'Is there but one door out of this room?' "'No, there is a small door beside the bookcase.' Where does it lead to? It leads to a passageway, at the end of which there is a stair down into the vestry. Muller gave an exclamation of surprise. 
The vestry, as well as the church, have neither of them been opened on the side toward the street. The church or the vestry, you mean, corrected Muller. How many doors have they on the street side? One each. The locks on these doors were in good condition? Yes, they were untouched. Was there anything stolen from the church? No, nothing that we could see. Was the pastor rich? No, he was almost a poor man, for he gave away all that he had. But you were his patron, Count. I was his friend. He was the confidential adviser of myself and my family. This would mean rich presence now and then, would it not? No, that is not the case. Our venerable pastor would take nothing for himself. He would accept no presents but gifts of money for his poor. Then you do not believe this to have been a murder for the sake of a robbery? No, there was nothing disturbed in any part of the house, no drawers or cupboards broken open at all. Muller smiled. I have heard it said that your romantic Hungarian bandits will often be satisfied with the small booty they may find in the pocket or on the person of their victim. You are right, Mr. Muller, but that is only when they can find nothing else. Or perhaps if it is a case of revenge? It cannot be revenge in this case. The pastor was greatly loved. He was loved and revered. By everyone? By everyone, the four men answered at once. Muller was still a while. His eyes were veiled and his face thoughtful. Finally he raised his head. There has been nothing moved or changed in this room? No, neither here nor anywhere else in the house or the church, answered the local magistrate. That is good. Now I would like to question the servants. Muller had already started for the door. Then he turned back into the room, and pointing toward the second door, he asked, Is that door locked? Yes, answered the Count. I found it locked when I examined it myself a short time ago. It was locked on the inside? Yes, locked on the inside. Very well. Then we have nothing more to do here for the time being. Let us go back into the dining-room. The men returned to the dining-room, Muller last, for he stopped to lock the door of the study and put the key in his pocket. Then he began his examination of the servants. The old housekeeper, who, as usual, was the first to arise in the household, had also, as usual, rung the bell to waken the other servants. Then when Liska came downstairs, she had sent her up to the pastor's room. His bedroom was to the right of the dining-room. Liska had, as usual, knocked on the door exactly at seven o'clock, and continued knocking for some few minutes without receiving any answer. Slightly alarmed, the girl had gone back and told the housekeeper that the pastor did not answer. Then the old woman asked the coachman to go up and see if anything was the matter with the reverend gentleman. The man returned in a few moments, paling and trembling in every limb, and apparently struck dumb by fright. He motioned the women to follow him, and all three crept up the stairs. The coachman led them first to the pastor's bed, which was untouched, and then to the pool of blood in his study. The sight of the latter frightened the servants so much that they did not notice at first that there was no sign of the pastor himself, whom they knew must have been murdered. 
When they finally came to themselves sufficiently to take some action, the man hurried off to call the magistrate, and Liska ran to the asylum to fetch the old doctor, the pastor's intimate friend. The aged housekeeper, trembling in fear, crept back to her own room and sat there waiting the return of the others. This was the story of the early morning as told by the three servants, who had already given their report, in much the same words to the Count, on his arrival and also to the magistrate. There was no reason to doubt the words of either the old housekeeper or of Janos the coachman, who had served more than twenty years in the rectory, and whose fidelity was known. The girl, Liska, was scarcely eighteen, and her round, childish face and big eyes, dimmed with tears, corroborated her story. When they had told Muller all they knew, the detective sat stroking his chin and looking thoughtfully at the floor. Then he raised his head and said in a tone of calm friendliness, "'Well, good friends, this will do for tonight. Now, if you will kindly give me a bite to eat and a glass of some light wine, I'd be very thankful. I have had no food since early this morning.' The housekeeper and the maid disappeared, and Janos went to the stable to harness the Count's trap. The magistrate turned to the detective. "'I thank you once more that you have come to us. I greatly appreciate that a stranger to our part of the country like yourself should give his time and strength to this problem of our obscure little village.' "'There is nothing else calling me, sir,' answered Muller and the Budapest police will explain to headquarters at Vienna if I do not return at once. Do you understand our tongue sufficiently to deal with these people here? Oh, yes, there will be no difficulty about that. I have hunted criminals in Hungary before, and a case of this kind does not usually call for disguises in which any accent would betray one. It is a strange profession, said the doctor. One gets used to it, like everything else, answered Muller, with a gentle smile. And now I have to thank you gentlemen for your confidence in me. Which I know you will justify, said the Count. Muller shrugged his shoulders. I haven't felt anything yet, but it will come. There's something in the air. The Count smiled at his manner of expressing himself, but all four of the men had already begun to feel sympathy and respect for this quiet-mannered little person, whose words were so few, and whose voice was so gentle. Something in his grey eyes, and in the quiet determination of his manner, made them realize that he had won his fame honestly. With the enthusiasm of his race, the Hungarian Count pressed the detective's hand in a warm grasp, and said, "'I know that we can trust in you.' You will avenge the death of my old friend and of those others who were killed here. The doctor and the magistrate will tell you about them tomorrow. We too will go home now. Telegraph us as soon as anything has happened. Everyone in the village will be ready to help you, and of course you can call on me for funds. Here is something to begin on. With these words the Count laid a silk purse full of gold pieces on the table. One more pressure of the hand, and he was gone. The other men also left the room, following the Count's lead in a cordial farewell of the detective. They also shared the nobleman's feeling that now indeed, with this man to help them, 
could the cloud of horror that had hung over the village for two years, and had culminated in the present catastrophe, be lifted. The excitement of the Count's departure had died away, and the steps of the other men on their way to the village had faded in the distance. There was nothing now to be heard but the rustling of the leaves and the creaking of the boughs as the trees bent before the onrush of the wind. Muller stood alone, with folded arms in the middle of the large room, letting his sharp eyes wander about the circle of light thrown by the lamps. He was glad to be alone, for only when he was alone could his brain do its best work. He took up one of the lamps and opened the door to the room in which, as far as could be known, the murder was committed. He walked in carefully, and setting the lamp on the desk, examined the articles lying about on it. There was nothing of importance to be found there. An open Bible and a sheet of paper with notes for the day's sermon lay on top of the desk. In the drawers, none of which were locked, were official papers, books, manuscripts of former sermons, and a few unimportant personal notes. The flame of the lamp flickered in the breeze that came from the open window, but Muller did not close the casement. He wanted to leave everything, just as he had found it, until daylight. When he saw that it was impossible to leave the lamp there, he took it up again and left the room. "'What is the use of being impatient?' he said to himself. "'If I move about in this poor light, I will be sure to ruin some possible clue. For there must be some clue left here.' It is impossible for even the most practiced criminal not to leave some trace of his presence. The detective returned to the dining-room, locking the study-door carefully behind him. The maid and the coachman returned, bringing in an abundant supper, and Muller sat down to do justice to the many good things on the tray. When the maid returned to take away the dishes, she inquired whether she should put the guest-chamber in order for the detective. He told her not to go to any trouble, for his sake, that he would sleep in the bed in the neighboring room. "'You are going to sleep in there?' said the girl, horrified. "'Yes, my child, and I think I will sleep well to-night. I feel very tired.' Liska carried the things out, shaking her head in surprise, at this thin little man, who did not seem to know what it was to be afraid." Half an hour later the rectory was in darkness. Before he retired, Muller made a careful examination of the pastor's bedroom. Nothing was disturbed anywhere, and it was evident that the priest had not made any preparations for the night, but was still at work at his desk in the study when death overtook him. When he came to this conclusion, the detective went to bed and soon fell asleep. In his little hut near the asylum gates, Shepherd Yancey slept as sound as usual, but he was dreaming and he spoke in his sleep. There was no one to hear him, for his faithful Margaret was snoring loudly. Snatches of sentences and broken words came from Yancey's lips. The hand, the big hand, I see it, at his throat, the face, the yellow face, it laughs. Next morning the children on their way to school crept past the rectory with wide eyes and open mouths, and the grown people spoke in lower tones when their work led them past the handsome old house. 
It had once been their pride, but now it was a place of horror to them. The old housekeeper had succumbed to her fright and was very ill. Liska went about her work silently, and the farm servants walked more heavily and chattered less than they had before. The hump-backed sexton, who had not been allowed to enter the church and therefore had nothing to do, made an early start for the inn, where he spent most of the day telling what little he knew to the many who made an excuse to follow him there. The only calm and undisturbed person in the rectory household was Muller. He had made a thorough examination of the entire scene of the murder, but had not found anything at all. Of one thing alone he was certain. The murderer had come through the hidden passage from the church. There were two reasons to believe this, one of which might possibly not be sufficient, but the other was conclusive. The heavy armchair before the desk, the chair on which the pastor was presumably sitting, when the murderer entered, was half turned round, turned in just such a way as it would have been, had the man who was sitting there suddenly sprung up in excitement or surprise. The chair was pushed back a step from the desk, and turned towards the entrance to the passageway. Those who had been in the room during the day had reported that they had not touched any one of the articles of furniture. Therefore the position of the chair was the same that had been given it by the man who sat in it, by the murdered pastor himself. Of course there was always the possibility that someone had moved the chair without realizing it. This clue, therefore, could not be looked upon as an absolute certain one had it stood alone. But there was other evidence far more important. The great pool of blood was just halfway between the door of the passage and the armchair. It was here, therefore, that the attack had taken place. The pastor could not have turned in this direction in the hope of flight, for there was nothing here to give him shelter, no weapon that he could grasp, not even a cane. He must have turned in this direction to meet and greet the invader, who had entered his room in this unusual manner, turned to meet him as a brave man would, with no other weapon than the sacredness of his calling and his age. But this had not been enough to protect the venerable priest. The murderer must have made his thrust at once, and his victim had sunk down dying on the floor of the room, in which he had spent so many hours of quiet study, in which he had brought comfort and given advice to so many anxious hearts. For dying he must have been. It would be impossible for a man to lose so much blood and live. The struggle, thought the detective, but was there a struggle? He looked about the room again, but could see nothing that showed disorder anywhere in its immaculate neatness. No, there could have been no struggle. It must have been a quick knife-thrust and a death at once. Not a shot. No, a shot would have been heard by the night watchman walking the streets near the church. The night was quiet, the window open. Someone in the village would have heard the noise of a shot and it was not likely that the old housekeeper who slept in the room immediately below, slept the light sleep of the aged, would have failed to have heard the firing of a pistol. Muller took a chair and sat down directly in front of the pool of blood, looking at it carefully. 
Suddenly he bowed his head deeper. He had caught sight of a fine thread of the red fluid, which had been drawn out for about a foot or two in a direction towards the door to the dining-room. What did that mean? Did it mean that the murderer went out through that door, dragging something after him, that made this delicate line? Muller bent down still deeper. The sun shone brightly on the floor, sending its clear rays obliquely through the window. The sharp eyes which now covered every inch of the yellow-painted floor discovered something else. They discovered that this red thread curved slightly and had a continuation in a fine scratch in the paint of the floor. Muller followed up this scratch, and it led him over towards the window, and then back again in wide curves, then out again under the desk, and finally, growing weaker and weaker, it came back to the neighborhood of the pool of blood, but on the opposite side of it. Muller got down on his hands and knees to follow up the scratch. He did not notice the discomfort of his position. His eyes shone in excitement, and a deep flush glowed in his cheeks. Also he began to whistle softly. Joe Muller, the bloodhound of the Austrian police, had found a clue a clue that soon would bring him to the trail he was seeking. He did not yet know what he could do with his clue, but this much he knew. Sooner or later this scratch in the floor would lead him to the murderer. The trail may be long and devious, but he would follow it, and its end would be success. He knew that this scratch had been made after the murder was committed, this was proved by the blood that marked its beginning, and it could not have been made by any of those who entered the room during the day, because by that time the blood had dried. This strange streak in the floor, with its weird curves and spirals, could have been made only by the murderer. But how? With what instrument? There was a riddle which must be solved. End of section 3